Dylan Thomas wrote for the first edition of his collected poems in 1952, one year before his death, a prologue in verse. A poem that celebrates with unabashed love and consummate artistry the little Welsh town of Larn. Larn, snug in its fold of fields and terraced woods, tiptoeing down to the ebb and flow edge of the multilingual sea. Larn where, beset by doubt and debt, and intimations of early mortality, Dylan salvaged from the shipwreck of his voyage to ruin a handful of relatively happy years. The last three lines of that prologue are, sadly and gloriously, prophetic. My ark sings in the sun at God-speeded summer's end, and the flood flowers now. Indeed it does, for Dylan, bedraggled, befuddled, roly-poly Dylan, did not really die in far New York. He is alive and well. He lives on, wherever people still love, the shape and sound of words. At his old home, the boathouse at Larne, Lorraine Schofield is now curator. Museums are dead places, but this house is definitely alive. Dylan's here 24 hours a day. But to begin at the beginning... Dylan Marley Thomas was born on October 27, 1914, at number 5 Keem Duncan Drive, in the prosperous Swansea suburb of Uplands. His father, David John, and his mother, Florence Williams, were both part of a common enough process in the Wales of that time, the gravitation of ambitious people from rural backgrounds to the cities and larger towns. Both had come from Carmarthenshire, not far, coincidentally, from Larne to anglicised Swansea as a step-up in life. DJ, Dylan's father, was a schoolteacher, well-versed in the Welsh bardic tradition. Out of this, by fortuitous chance or uncanny foresight, he was to give his son a name as unique as his future literary achievements, Dylan Marley. The Dylan came from the Mabinogion, the Welsh medieval romance, the Marley from an uncle of DJ, who had been a well-known poet in his native Carmarthenshire. So both names came out of the mists of history, out of a time Dylan was later to describe as when there were wolves in Wales and birds the colour of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills. DJ taught English at Swansea Grammar School. Gilbert Bennett was a pupil there at the same time as Dylan. One of the features, of course, of DJ's teaching was his very strong, resonant reading voice. He enjoyed reading aloud to us as pupils, and I'm quite sure that this was one of the things that led to Dylan's love of rhetoric and sounding. I'm sure that in his house, which I went into on many occasions, uh, where there was a large library of books to which Dylan had access, that his father was reading Shakespeare to him from a very early age and impressing him with the sound of words. And Dylan actually told the cast of Under Milk Wood in New York, love the words. Now this was a phrase that he picked up from his father, because his father used to tell us as pupils, love the words. And I'm sure that came from his father, and certainly the example of a very fine, resonant reading voice. From cradle to grave, Dylan's father was the most important influence on his development as a poet. 
He always regarded the old man with respect and understanding, right up to his death, just a few months before Dylan's own. Dylan's daughter, Aronwi, remembers how close the father and son were when, after his retirement, DJ and Florence settled in Larne. If he had any poems he was working on, he would actually show them to his father. He was very conservative about showing his work, but he did show some of the first drafts of his poems to his own father. And, um, in fact, his father's death devastated him because I think he really um, admired his father's criticism. To most people, DJ Thomas was a sharp-tongued, bitter man, a man with regrets, regrets that he had not made more of his life after a promising start with a first-class honours degree in English. Dylan, ever sensitive to his father's disappointment, wrote, Do not go gentle, as DJ lay dying, an exhortation to die in anger, not in humility. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Opposite the Thomas House was the wonder world of Kim Duncan Park, Dylan's favourite playground as a boy, and afterwards the locale and the inspiration for poems and stories. Eating bread from a newspaper, drinking water from the chained cup that the children filled with gravel in the fountain basin where I sailed my ship. Slept at night in a dog kennel, but nobody chained him up. And the dog sleeper, alone between nurses and swans, while the boys among the willows made tigers jump out of their eyes to roar on the rockery stones. And the groves were blue with sailors. Dylan's closest friend, then and right through his life, was Daniel Jones. Our voluminous literary collaborations were more than mere fun. They were what could be called serious play. In poems, we always wrote alternate lines, the odd ones for me, the even ones for Dylan. And we made it a strict rule that neither of us should be allowed to interfere with or criticise the other's contribution. Our pen name was Walter Bram, a name probably borrowed from Bram Stoker, author of Dracula. Bram's poems were sometimes divided into separate collections with titles like Voiceless Frolic. I would describe Bram's style as bafflingly inconsistent. This early collaborative play with words, while giving every indication of Dylan's lifelong love affair with shape and sound, also produced some offbeat lines. One poem may begin, You will be surprised when I remain obdurate. And the next, I lay under the currant trees and told the beady berries about Jesus. If Dylan had not become a poet, he would almost certainly have made a very fine professional actor. What he lacked in physical stature, he would have compensated for by his commanding, resonant musical voice and his ability to hold an audience. And his interest in acting had begun at a very early age. Evelyn Berman Jones was most impressed when she saw him in a grammar school production. He used to say, I want to be an actor, the best. 
And he proved himself when he went to the grammar school. I remember going uh, in a party from the high school to see him in the lead in Oliver Cromwell. And he was so superb, we gave him a standing ovation. When Dylan left the grammar school, it was a great disappointment to his father that he did not go to university. But Dylan's universities were to be of the non-academic kind. Rowley Davis met him about that time. In Bernard Street, there was a, a billiard saloon above a, a Bernard uh, news agent. And uh, two or three times in the afternoons, particularly during holidays, we'd uh, go there and have a game of snooker or billiards. And Dylan was there itself. So I got quite friendly uh, from that angle. But then I lost him uh, because he was going to grammar school, I in Brimwell School. As surely as DJ Thomas had in his time gravitated from Carmarthenshire to Swansea, Dylan now began to look toward London. But Thomas probably did more drinking and talking than he did writing in the London of the 30s, though he did publish his first book of poems, 18 Poems. This was well received by the discerning few, but largely ignored by the critics. The early promise of the young Rimbo of Kim Donkin Drive, as he called himself, had already been recognised by Pamela Hansford Johnson. Well, it was through an item or a corner in the Sunday Referee, rather ridiculously known as the Poets' Corner at that time, in which there was a competition every week for the best poet. And when Dylan sent in his, I thought that he was something really remarkable. The poem was not one of his best. It was rather derivative of Elliot, I think. But I did think that he was the best poet that has ever come across by this corner. So then I suggested to Victor Newberg, and suggested it very emphatically, that Dylan should win the second prize for the book prize. The first prize I won, and uh, very unjustly too, because it was dreadful. So we both criticised each other rigidly. Just about now, Dylan met another young poet, Vernon Watkins. Gwen Watkins, Vernon's widow, recalls that meeting. Vernon and Dylan first met in April 1935, a few months after 18 poems had been published. On that occasion, Vernon read his own poems to Dylan. And the next time they met in Kumdonkin Drive, Dylan, en revanche, or in revenge, as a Hungarian friend of Vernon's once translated it, read his poems to Vernon. The first poem of Dylan's that Vernon ever heard was Ears in the Turrets Here. And the last that he read that day was the sonnet sequence All to Wise by Owllight in the Halfway House. Now, Vernon wasn't usually a person who noticed people very much. That might be surprising in view of the fact that he was such a keen observer of the natural scene. But when Dylan read the last line of this sequence, on rose and icicle the ringing handprint, his expression as he looked up with the lamplight behind him like a halo was something that Vernon never forgot. Until the end of the war, they saw each other often. After that, although Dylan came to Swansea for broadcasts and cricket matches, and Vernon occasionally went down to Larne, they didn't see each other very much. But these were the years in which deaths and entrances and in country heaven and the marvellous radio scripts were being brought out. And 
Vernon more and more became convinced that Dylan was one of the great writers in prose and verse of the English language. Toward the end of the 30s, Dylan Thomas met Kathleen McNamara. It was love at first sight, and they were married in July 1937. For the next 16 years, the impoverished couple were to live in several rented homes in England and Wales, sometimes in homes rented for them by friends and patrons. Eronwy was born in a studio in Chelsea. Underneath the lamplight by the barracks gate Darling, I remember the way you used to wait. Twas there that you whispered tenderly that you loved me, would always be my lily of the lamplight, my own lily. During the war, he was also reading his own scripts on BBC Radio and doing any other hack work that came his way. He once referred to that time as his period of expedient scribbling. But even Dylan's hack work was vastly superior to many other writers' best and most serious work. He could invest the most mundane documentary or the most overtly propagandist film with a touch of the poet. There were enforced absences from Kathleen and the children who lived depending on Dylan's solvency with relatives or in a succession of rented houses. While in London, Dylan often stayed with Theodora Fitzgibbon. Dylan to me was the most amazing person. He had a magic as far as I'm concerned. And when, you, when I say magic, this is absolutely true because you have to remember the time at which I met him. I just escaped from the Germans in France and served my immediate companion. And we were really rather lost in England. We hardly knew anybody in Chelsea at that time, except occasionally we'd meet people in pubs whom we liked and who liked us. And then there was this extraordinary day when this funny little man turned up called Dylan Thomas and who came in and who immediately won our hearts and who brought with him this magic of words which he had. And I cannot tell you what effect this had on us during the war. Those bleak, sad, bitter days of danger and trouble and, and all the things, people dying, and then this fun. You'd be sitting in your room, perhaps cold and unable to find a shilling to put in the gas and various other things, and Dylan would call quite unexpectedly always because he never announced himself. And within a half an hour, you'd be enthralled and rocking with laughter and full of yourself. This is all entirely without anything to drink because we didn't have anything. Then we'd go out to the pub, perhaps, and have a half a pint of bitter, if you could get it. But somehow the whole... He, tra he made the whole thing magic. It was, it was just as though fairy godmother had come. On one memorable occasion, Dylan's father came up to London. And then he came to me one day and he said, I've done something awful. And I said, well, what is it, Dylan? I've asked my father up to London to meet my friends. And I said, well, that sounds all right. What's he like? Oh, he's very nice, but he's very proper, you know. And um, so anyway, everything was uh, got ready for Mr Thomas to come up. 
and a, a, a suitable dinner was planned, which was extremely difficult because I, I, he never seemed to have a ration book with him. I think that was left down with Kathleen. And, but anyway, we planned something, and Mr. Thomas was brought round to our flat in, in Portland Square in Chelsea. And he was a very neat, nice. He, he looked exactly what he was, a little Welsh school teacher. But he was an extremely pleasant little man. And then after, after dinner, we went out to the pub. And um, Dylan had arranged for all sorts of eminent people to call, such as Augustus John, who looked about 90, but he was, in fact, I think, about 60-something. And Norman Douglas, who was then in England, who was, who was nearly 80. And another painter who was quite elderly, or who looked it with his beard, and, and various other writers. And then there was a, a, a writer who was quite, I think it was um, Henry Green or somebody, who looked quite elderly. And Dylan was very, oh, he was all dressed up to beat the band with one of Constantine's ties on and somebody else's shirt, and he was as neat as a pin. And half a pint, half pints of bitter, no pints were in evidence. And um, eventually in the evening, we all had a very pleasant time. Mr. Thomas was sitting next to me, and we were having a rather stilted conversation. And Dylan was the other side, and he said, Well, Father, don't you think I'm living very well in London? What do you think of my friends? And Mr. Thomas said, oh, they're very nice, Dylan. Yes, I like London. It's a nice part. Very nice in Chelsea. And he said, I, what I was wondering, Dylan, do you not have any friends of your own age? Some people have an image of Dylan as a drunken, rip-roaring, abusive, Behanesque character. Nothing could be further from the truth. He was, in reality, a little boy lost. Many people over the years have asked me what Dylan was really like. Well, of course, that's almost impossible to say about anybody. But one thing, even when he'd had a few drinks, I never really saw him um, rude to anybody, not except verbally just a little bit but very um, intellectually rude if you know what i mean rather it wasn't abuse i never really ever heard him use a swear word not ever not even the simplest not even damn which is rather extraordinary um it's he seemed above them somehow he seemed i mean if he did say want to say something like that he'd have his own word which um fitted in perfectly and of course dylan was a consummate actor and an actor in him appealed to all actors. Clive Webster has toured internationally with his tribute to Dylan Thomas. I've enjoyed doing uh, this show on Thomas's work. I enjoyed doing the research on it, and I've enjoyed thinking and devising it, and then, of course, the glory, in a way, of, of performing it. I've called the show The Common Fun of Earth, and that comes from uh, Thomas's description of words. And what he said is, he was talking about words on the page, and he said, there they are, seemingly lifeless. They're made only of black and white, but out of them, out of their own being, comes love and terror and pity and pain and wonder and all the other vague abstractions that make our ephemeral lives dangerous great and bearable. Out of them come the gusts and grunts and hiccups and hee-haws of the common fun of earth. Dylan and Kathleen, 
Now that was a relationship that survived all the big and little revolutions undiminished, all the infidelities, real or imagined. From the start, Catelyn McNamara had believed implicitly in him. I had complete faith in him as a writer. I mean, I just took it absolutely for granted from the very beginning that he was a great writer, without even looking at it, because I was never one to read poetry. But I somehow knew, I felt, you know, this, that, that this, this golden gift was inside him, and we both had great respect for his gift and took care of it, and, uh, while at the same time never talking about it. But anyhow, apart from that, apart from not talking about poetry, there were times when he would, uh, was very excited, you know, he'd just written a poem or something, and he'd walk around, following me around when I was washing nappies and washing up and all that kind of thing, trying to read it through for me to hear, and oh, it just drive me crazy. I was dying for it to come to an end, you know, and uh, then he'd ask my advice about a word or something, and uh, very often I'd say something, and he might quite often put it in. If he hadn't had the writing, I don't think he'd had a hope in hell with me. Oh, that was absolutely most important. We all thought, me and my two sisters, we came from a great uh, artistic tradition. We just had to have a, an artist. If he hadn't been a big artist or a writer or a poet or something, wouldn't have bothered with him at all. I'm, I'm sure of that. In the dark clouds inside out Till the boys come home. By the end of the war, Dylan had written several new poems, and a collection, Deaths and Entrances, was eventually published in 1946. That contained the marvellous Fern Hill, and the poem closed with the lines now engraved in Dylan's memory in Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey. Oh, as I was young and easy in the mercy of his means, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. With hindsight now, it seems incredible that in 1946, aged 32, Dylan Thomas only had nine more years to live. And so much of that time was to be given to worrying about money and expending time and energy in pursuing the easy American dollar. Thomas's reputation as a poet and reader of his own scripts on radio was growing. So also was his reputation as a raconteur, a good man for a party, a practical joker, and to quote an acquaintance from that time, the funniest man in the world. Dylan had that rare gift of identifying emotionally with people and of taking other people's troubles on board and making them his own for a while. Already there were signs of the erosion of his lyrical gift and the substitution of the public persona. He could, ironically, help others with their problems, but could not cope with his own. He drank ever more heavily. Catelyn. He just didn't want to do ordinary, dirty life, which is painful anyhow. Most people try to escape it. And I think the entire reason for his disintegrating and mine, except that I'm still here, 
It's the alcohol. If you had Dylan Thomas with no alcohol, he'd be a perfectly serene, happy old man sitting here beside me. But serenity and happiness for Dylan in those last years were to be in short measure. And the little there was centred on Lan, his family, and the occasional trip to his hometown of Swansea. During those Swansea visits, Dylan was the life of every party. Finvola Davis, now with her husband Peter, a director of the Dylan Thomas Theatre, remembers him well. I remember being very excited one evening after a rehearsal when someone said, come on, we're all going back to Ruby's because Dylan's going to be there. So back we went, some of us, like myself, very new members. And this great chap, this presence, really, was there. And I remember him being extremely uh, jolly and happy with me, sitting alongside me on the settee. And he had that sort of, I don't know, personality that you just wanted to be there with him. And I could understand why all the members were pleased, why they were all bubbling, and why they talked so much about him. I mean, I, I, I knew him just as a name. Anybody who's read about Dylan knows his great friend Bert Trick, where Bert Trick lived virtually across the road from me, and Dylan was one of those lads that were always around in Bert Trick's shop. Apocryphal stories abound about Dylan, particularly in Swansea and London. So it is good to hear anecdotes showing another side of his complex character. Edith Sitwell. I've never seen him behave anything but beautifully with me. He always behaved with me like a son with his mother. One day he came to lunch with me. That was the only time when I had seen him a little, perhaps, over-duty. And he said, I'm sorry to smell so awful, Edith. It's Margaret. Oh, so I said, yes, of course, my dear boy, naturally it's Margaret. Of course, I quite understand that. He just meant Margaret. <laughs> John Arlott, a BBC producer and long-time friend, remembers Dylan, especially in those latter years. I worshipped Dylan. I thought he was a great poet and a great reader. I thought he was a lovely man. When he died, I wept. Those years of the, of the fall, when he was hard up. Again, people talk about him not paying debts. Every farthing he ever borrowed off me, he paid back, and no check he ever drew me bounced. I did get a letter from him not long before the end, saying, Dear John, I need a lot of money. I don't want it all from you. I was going to say 20 pounds, but send me 10 pounds. I'm not going to promise to pay it back because I never shall. And if you don't want to send it, you needn't. Thank God I sent it. It's the last time I ever heard from him. And if ever I thought a man had a touch of divinity, it was Dylan. But alas, that touch of divinity was not enough to save him. The first American trip had been embarked on in the hope of making some real money. Alas, time and tide, the tide of life bearing him in a different direction, meant that Dylan saw less and less of some of his best and oldest friends, like Vernon Watkins, Vernon's widow Gwen. They didn't meet very often. There was not the continuous friendship and exchange of poems between them that there had been. But when Dylan died, it was as though all the freshness and intimacy of that early friendship overwhelmed Vernon again. And 
I don't think he ever came to terms with his own personal loss or with the loss to English poetry that Dylan's death represented. He used to say again and again, oh, the poems he would have written. Uh, I think the whole rest of Vernon's life was spent, he said in line of one of his own poems, I toil to set the dead at rest. And I think that was never truer in the rest of his life after Dylan died. He wrote poem after poem to Dylan. He wrote elegy after elegy. He even wrote articles, which he'd never done before, defending Dylan's memory. Um, in the memorial volume to Vernon, it's remarkable how many people say, when we met him, what he talked about was Dylan, always Dylan. And I think the line in his own poem, which he wrote long before Dylan's death, came absolutely true for him. Nor is one loved till he is lost. There was one exception, Daniel Jones. Dylan and I shared, of course, a literary relationship outside our collaborations. This went beyond mere discussion and interchange of books. He read to me every poem he wrote when it was completed, and often at certain stages before completion. Throughout his life, Dylan kept up this habit of reading to me every poem at whatever stage it happened to be and whenever opportunity arose in Swansea, Larne, London, Oxford, anywhere we happened to be together or to stay together. The last occasion was in October 1953 when he stayed with me in Swansea on his way first to London and then for the last time to the United States. He had often read long passages of Under Milkwood to me before, but on this occasion he spoke about his plans for the evening sequence, which he intended to balance the morning sequence in length, and showed me fragments of it consisting chiefly of ballads given to some of the characters to sing. For example, the ballad of Bessie Bighead. The evening, too, was to be all singing. Dan Jones composed the music for the songs in Under Milk Wood. This is the song of Jack Crack and Flossie Snail, sung by the children of Clan Sandlet Comprehensive School, Swansea. The importance of the music in Under Milk Wood is stressed by Norma Thomas, who has probably played Polly Garter and sung Polly's song more often than anyone else. Uh, the music in Under Milkwood is uh, of enormous importance and the fact that Dan Jones wrote it uh, is very significant. He was a great friend, obviously, of, of Dylan. So he knew him, knew his work and knew her, his feelings. And the kind of music he wrote for Milkwood is is perfect. I loved a man whose name was Tom. He was strong as a bear and two yards long. I loved 
a man whose name was Dick. He was big as a barrel and three feet thick. And I loved a man whose name was Harry. Six feet tall and sweet as a cherry. But the one I loved best, a week or a sleep, was little Willie Week, and he's six feet deep. Well, sometimes people find them rather funny on first hearing Tom, Dick and Harry and little Willie Wee. But underneath all that, there is tremendous pathos, I think, which Dan Jones's music brings out. And one of the best loved and most memorable songs from Under Milk Wood is that of the eccentric clergyman, the Reverend Eli Jenkins, John Hugh Thomas. And every evening at sundown I ask a blessing on the town For whether we last the night or no I'm sure these always touch and go We are not wholly bad or good who live our lives under milkwood. And thou I know will be the first to see our best side, not our worst. It is indeed ironic that the American trips, seen as expedients to earn some desperately needed money, should, quite literally, have been the death of Dylan. Adrift on a sea of alcohol and adulation, Dylan's days were numbered. America had never experienced anybody quite like Dylan, and Dylan had never experienced any place quite like America. He drank his way from one poetry reading to the next, seeming to perform better when drunk. He was unhappy and homesick, plagued by doubt and fear. His audiences loved the poems and the way he read them. The quiet mystery of Should Lanterns Shine enthralled them. Should lanterns shine, the holy face, caught in an octagon of unaccustomed light, would wither up, and any boy of love look twice before he fell from grace. I have been told to reason by the heart, but heart, like head, leads helplessly. I have been told to reason by the pulse, and when it quickens, alter the action's pace till field and roof lie level and the same. So fast I move, defying time, the quiet gentleman whose beard wags in Egyptian wind. I have heard many years of telling, and many years should see some change. The ball I threw whilst playing in the park has not yet reached the ground. And they also loved the poems like Lament, so obviously autobiographical and prophetic. When I was a man you could call a man, and the black cross of the holy house, sigh the old ramrod, 
dying of welcome. Brandy and ripe in my bright bass prime. Now I am a man, no more, no more, and a poor reward for a roaring life, sighed the old ramrod, dying of strangers. Chastity prays for me, piety sings, innocence sweetens my last black breath. Modesty hides my thighs in her wings, and all of the deadly virtues plague my death. A short time before Dylan's death, television came to Wales and he made two appearances, both outstandingly successful. There seems no doubt that had he lived, he would have been one of the most successful television personalities of our time. The first was in a programme about the arts in Swansea, called Hometown. With his friends, the painter Fred Janes, the composer Dan Jones, and the poet Vernon Watkins. Dylan stole the show. The producer of that was DJ Thomas. He did it beautifully. And the critical reaction was ecstatic. I remember the critic of the listener saying, what delightful surprises one can have on television. Last night, the programme uh, Hometown was very competently done, but the highlight of the programme for me, and I'm sure for many others, was the totally unexpected appearance of Dylan Thomas. And the letters started to come in, hints from London, let's have some more Dylan Thomas. And I was very, very excited about it and hoping to do some more with Dylan. And suddenly from London came a note to me to ask, would Dylan like to take part in a series called Speaking Personally? And Dylan did reading his marvellously funny story, An Outing. Unlike the first, this was to be a live transmission, and Dylan gave the producer some anxious moments. The day before the transmission, I still hadn't seen the script. I rang the house in Larne, and Kathleen told me that Dylan was on his way, which was encouraging. However, I left a note at the hotel where he was staying in St. Asaph to tell him that I'd be coming to see him the next morning to see the script and to have a rehearsal. I arrived at the hotel at 10 o'clock and Dylan presented me with the script, just the first half of it. The second half had still to be written. I read the first half and I thought it was magnificent stuff. So I said, right, we'll have lunch now and you can go on to the second half. No, he said, I had breakfast, I don't want any lunch, I'll carry on with it now. So I went away, left him to it, and at 2.15 I was back, and there uh, was the completed script. And as you probably know, it was a wonderful piece of humorous writing. I was a little concerned because, first of all, the script had to be typed and 
there would not be much time for rehearsal. I was concerned too that he wouldn't be able to, wouldn't be able to remember it all. So I thought the best thing to do would be to put the script in front of him on a table, giving the cameraman strict instructions not to show the script at all. And that's what happened. We saw the top half of Dylan, and it is quite astonishing. I have no recollection of him looking at the script at all, and he certainly did not turn a page. Once again, the impact of this piece by Dylan was ecstatic. People writing in the, uh, in the papers about it and so on. And I was really looking forward now to doing a lot more with him. We'll meet again, don't know where, don't know where. But it was not to be. Dylan's self-styled voyage to ruin was almost run. The life of the greatest lyric poet of our time was coming to its term. Within the year, Dylan would be dead. Dead of strangers, as he had written in the poem Lament, far from family and Alain and Swansea. The next time I saw him was in our old little studio here in the Grove in Swansea, just before he was uh, to go to America. We chatted and talked about the possibility of doing some more work and came to an agreement about one or two ideas which we would work on when he came back. And it's interesting to think that as he was leaving, we were both Thomases. He turned to me and he said, you know, he said, we'll have to call you Thomas the Pictures and me Thomas the Death. And that was sadly prophetic, wasn't it? When you think that a few weeks later he was dead. And I don't know whether you've heard the epitaph for Dylan by Roy Campbell. I always knew that Dylan could do anything, but I did not know that he could die. Dying was the one thing he failed to do. Dylan Bach, wherever you are, remember your old pals and pray for us. <laughs>